Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Hello and welcome to the Witch Money Podcast. Ariano, and this week's episode is the fourth instalment of our new series on the rising cost of living, bringing you expert advice and money-saving tips on a different topic each episode to help you ease the squeeze. Now, with the news this week that fuel prices have hit new record highs and train fares up by the steepest increase since 2013, today we'll be taking a deep dive into everyday travel and commuting. And we've got so much insight and advice coming up on how to cut your car's running costs and train fares. And for this, we're joined by our regular Ease the Squeeze expert, which consumer rights editor, Adam French. And we're also welcoming Simon Williams, fuel spokesperson from the RAC. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, wonderful as always. Um, I think, you know, I paid uh, £1.50 at the pump for fuel um, at the weekend. So I'm very interested in in what Simon has to say during this one, because that is a painful painful expense now it has to be said without a doubt that's a uh, very expensive at the moment well let's start there then shall we because it's been reaching record highs since last november when petrol hit just over one pound 46 per liter but this week with russia's invasion of ukraine pushing prices up even more on wednesday which was march the second the average price of petrol stood around 10p more at just over one pound 51 per liter so simon can you take us through the different factors that make up the cost of fuel and why some of these have changed so much over the last six months Yes, Lucia. Um, we've been on a rise, uh, rising journey for some considerable time. Mm. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the price of oil dropped to $13 a barrel. And considering the record mm. highs, $144, that's just uh, unbelievable. And of course, um, prices at the pump dropped then, but of course, no one was driving. Um, and now uh, things are starting to become more normal. Oil's been increasing. Um, but um, the oil producers have been struggling to add um, oil barrels back into the market. Um, And naturally, we're all driving more, we're all flying more, moving more. Therefore, the price of oil has gone up. And then all of a sudden, with uh, what's happening with Russia invading Ukraine, that's caused a lot of uncertainty on the oil market and has Mm -hmm. sent prices up to yesterday $117 a barrel. Um, The other thing that affects um, the price we pay at the pumps is the exchange rate. 
Uh, we need uh, the pound to be as strong as possible against the dollar to have cheaper prices because fuel like oil is traded in dollars on the wholesale market. When I, I mentioned the £144 a barrel for oil being the record back in 2008, but at that time, the exchange rate was pretty much $2 um, to the pound. So the highest price that people paid at that in that year was £1.20 a litre. So you can see how important mm. the exchange rate is in terms of the price we pay at the pumps. It's extraordinary how many different factors have sort of come together to mean that, you know, it's hitting us in the pocket so much harder. There's another factor too I should probably mention as well. Back in uh, on the 1st of September, we introduced a more bio uh, to our petrol. We moved from E5 uh, petrol to E10 petrol. I mean, that means that we now have 10% ethanol in our petrol. And ethanol is really expensive on the wholesale market. So that's also adding uh, an extra cost. And then the other factors you have are tax, uh, fuel duty at nearly 58 pence a litre, and then um, VAT at the end at 20, uh, 20%. And also uh, the retailer margin, which is uh, a factor that can be really quite, uh, can add quite a lot to the cost. Back in December, retailers took 10 pence a litre extra margin compared to their long-term averages of six pence a litre. And that really inflated the prices we paid for fuel in the run-up to Christmas, unfortunately, because oil had dropped and they should really have been passing on those savings to drivers. Can we go back to the tax factor? Because there's a definitely an interesting angle here on the government's takeaway from the price of fuel. And we've had a question on this on Facebook from Mark, who says, with the increase in fuel, this means the government gets a bigger slice of our money. What about reducing the rate until everything gets back to normal? And I think Mark means the government's 20% tax on fuel here. But of course, there's also the fuel duty we pay, the flat amount of 57 Point nine five pence per litre. Now, it's a big cut, isn't, isn't it, Simon? Is there an argument that the government should reduce either, do you think? We think uh, there definitely is. I think probably VAT will be a bit more palatable at the moment. Obviously, we're trying to move to towards uh, zero emission driving one day and uh, lowering our carbon uh, footprint. So probably fuel duty isn't you know, something that the government would feel comfortable about reducing. But I think VAT is a very good point. VAT is a effectively equated to 25 pence of the cost at the moment and added at the end of the transaction. So if retailers take a bigger margin ever, then we, we end up paying more VAT and the government benefits with more tax. Fuel duty brings in around 28 billion a year for the government at the moment, but that's a, it's, a, it's a tax kind of on its last legs because as, as we move towards uh, 2030, when we won't be able to buy a new petrol or diesel car, something's got to change because there'll be far more electric cars on the road. Mm. They will also need to contribute to um, funding the roads. Uh, and at the moment, they aren't, uh, you know, they aren't doing so because they aren't taxed in that way. It's very difficult. Really. I think something uh, does need to change. I think actually lessening the uh, VAT or reducing the VAT would be a great way of actually helping people who really depend on the cars every day. Are the government in talks at the moment about any kind of changes along these lines? No, they aren't. Uh, I'm sure they aren't. Well, maybe they are and we just don't know. But uh, it would be good to think they were. Uh, but at the moment, it's just becoming very difficult for drivers because we know an awful lot of uh, household incomes are now being taken up by um, fuel bills. Uh, people are starting to drive more. People are going back to the office now that self-isolation's ended. Uh, people are you know, actually driving more than they have done for quite some time. And unfortunately, fuel prices are at these record highs. 
Well, while they are at record highs, we'll be talking about ways you can improve your car's efficiency and cut your fuel cost later on. But the other price hike we're focusing on today is on train fares, which have gone up by 3.8% in England and Wales and 4.8% in London. Adam, why these amounts and why now? Well, as Simon said, the timing couldn't be much worse for everyone returning to the office at the moment. Um, clearly, mm. if you're not commuting in the car, you're you're doing it on the train potentially, and that again is going to be going up. And there's uh, there's no avoiding that, unfortunately. So these price rises came in at the start of March, um, three point eight percent outside of London, four point eight percent inside of London. That's a big, big increase, and in what is already the most expensive train fares in Europe that we're paying, um, and it's an expense a lot of people who work in offices, for example, have been working remotely for the last couple of years, haven't really had to pay for a while. And that means that actually the income coming into the rail industry has been quite low. Uh, now, traditionally, you can increase the cost of your train travel in line with inflation, which we all know has gone pretty crazy at the moment. In fact, it can be increased in line with RPI, which is the higher measure of inflation is at 7.8% at the moment. That has been capped by government to bring it down to this 38 and 4.8 rate. Um, and the argument is that this money is needed to ensure that, you know, they can keep place with inflation, salaries can be paid, investment can be put back into the rail industry as well. But it is a very bitter pill to swallow for regular commuters. Mm. And it adds a massive additional cost to, to going back to work, ultimately, which has been a big government push over recent weeks and months is get back to the office, start move, powering up the economy again. And yet when you look at those kind of increases, it's no surprise that a lot of people would rather be working from home more often. Absolutely. It could be a deterrent, but we'll get onto that later. But first, let's hear how these prices are impacting one of our listeners. As part of our Ease the Squeeze series, we want to know how the current cost of living crisis is affecting you. And this week, we've been speaking to Sarah about how her monthly travel expenses are rising. I'm HR manager. It's located in London Bridge. I live in Kent and I'm just outside of the M25. Um, So my train going to Victoria, um, which... Uh, it's fine if I work that way. Not so great for London Bridge. Going from my local station is pretty bad at the moment because they've reduced the service since COVID. So we don't have um, direct trains to Blackfriars anymore. So now we have to change at another station and the, the wait for that train is about 20 minutes. So, you know, with the morning commute and having a child at school, it's just not very helpful. If I go into the office, it's £25.90 just for the train for the day if I get if I go in peak time but it drops down to about 14 pounds off peak I'm going to be trying to do once a week um, where I can but um, I've been going from a different station but that means I'm driving there paying for parking Um, my husband's going in and he goes from our station and comes back to a different station so I go pick him up in the evening at the moment just to try and help with the cost When I started working from home, I was quickly put on furlough. So I already had like a 20% drop in my pay. Then I lost my job through redundancy. So I'd never got any um, financial gain from suddenly not commuting all of a sudden. Um, And then when I lost my job, um, I was made redundant. But I did get a new job. That was in December 2020, which is the job I'm in currently now. When I go in, because I'm not going in very often, um, the money is not really a massive, massive problem. But obviously later on down the line I will need to go in late you know more often so I have been looking at the flexible ticket but it doesn't necessarily always work out because you have to use it within 28 days so if you've got holiday 
or you're sick, you almost don't really gain anything from it. And you only save about £3 a day on the ticket price. So we've tried lots of different routes to get into the office, um, which is okay at the moment, but it's not really sustainable if we happen to need to go back in the office five days. It probably would be a bit of a shock to my sister. (laughs) Sarah also told us about the running cost of her car and where she's noticed prices creeping up. We filled up the car the other day and I think it was it was like £70 and we just have an Astra. So I was quite shocked. We always try and fill it up all, you know, all in one go from the same breeze because it's like the cheapest petrol station. And mostly we use that car for now sort of going to the different stations, taking our daughter to school, which is about a five-minute drive, and then you know just our leisure. Um, but yeah, filling it up, I was quite shocked the other day because it was, it was the most money we've ever put in the tank. And I don't think the tank was even on red when we put the, the petrol in. And it's just a one, I think it's a 1.6 Astra. And that's also going, so we need a new car soon. <laughs> I've been looking at the miles per gallon. I'm trying to get one that's much better than what we've got at the moment. This, the car we bought now, we bought quite quickly um, just because we needed a car um, because I started my old job, not this one, uh, quite quickly. So it was sort of like, let's just quickly get this car and and see how we do. But yeah, at the moment, um, I'm looking for something that's much more fuel efficient. We would like to look at a hybrid. But again, the the initial cost for a hybrid is a lot more than just a petrol car. Um, And the timing just isn't right with having a baby and having another baby and then going on to statutory maternity pay. So, yeah, we just have to try and balance all those things up. Thank you so much to Sarah for sharing that with us. And we'll keep coming back to her comments throughout the show. Now, I just wanted to start by picking up on Sarah's point about her train commute. She says her service has been reduced, meaning she has an extra change and her journey takes longer now. It's a reality many are facing and yet prices are going up. It's it's really a kind of paradox, isn't it? Because we're seeing the steepest increase in rail fares since 2013, while the number of train services has been so steeply reduced. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, obviously a huge concern for people. And it's very telling here in your stories about how much more problematic and challenging just that simple commute has become, actually, with the reduction mm-hmm. in services. And again, that drives people away from wanting to, to get on the train. I think statistics from sort of last year do show that train travel, the amount of journeys being made, it was around 85% of pre-pandemic levels. Now, we do expect those to come mm-hmm. up again, but obviously since then we had Omicron and, and people working remotely again um, due to that and things that feel like they're opening up a lot more again now. So that that may continue to change. Um, but just as challenging as we've found the last two years with COVID, the sudden reduction in passenger numbers for the rail industry has been a huge challenge as well. Uh, and that has mm-hmm. inevitably meant that fewer services, less people on trains, less money coming in. It feels like these increases were somewhat um, inevitable, but certainly you would hope that we'll get back to pre-pandemic levels of the amount of journeys that are actually happening on the train line um, before too long as people do begin to travel around a lot more. And again, more people on the train, more money coming in, that may mean that we are insulated from these kind of increases in the in the future. This also chimes with what we've uh, found at the RAC with our long-term research. Um, we always ask uh, drivers um, how often they use other forms of transport. And uh, this uh, last year, and um, people said they used the train, uh, used public transport far less than ever before. And they said they were less willing to, even if it was actually better in their mm. eyes. And also we saw that um, having access to a car became even more important, even though people weren't necessarily driving the number of miles they might have done in previous years. Just having access to that car because of what was going on with COVID um, was deemed to be far more important to them. 
doesn't come as a great surprise, does it? If you, if you think no. about the nature of, do you want to get on public transport in the middle of a pandemic, or do you want to sit in a car a bit more isolated from everyone else? It absolutely makes sense, and it's. I think the challenge will be that these behaviours become ingrained, and actually, mm. how do you get people back onto public transport in a, in a productive way? I mean, I haven't seen too much coming from, from government around that, for example, at the moment, and certainly increasing prices does feel very counter to any way we can encourage people to get back onto trains, for example. And we've all learned that we can actually kind of carry on working from home, you know, and, and lots of people will now be um, using hybrid working. So, you know, people aren't perhaps driving as much. We've also seen through our research, people tend to be, are going to be driving perhaps more in their leisure time rather than perhaps mm. commuting with people only working two or three days in the office these days. It's true. Amazing what can be accomplished on a Zoom call. <laughs> And as we've already mentioned, this is all happening at a time when many people are thinking about moving back into the office and reassessing how many days to work from home. So could the hike be enough to put people off going back in? It's something we've been speaking to rail expert and former British rail manager Mark Smith about. And he says the price hike could actually result in fewer people travelling and companies losing out. So it's a question of, of, of what the government want to do. And I don't see any sign of them wanting to make commuter travel cheaper. And this is a problem as we come out of the pandemic, because I said before that commuters have always been seen as a cash cow. You could put the price up and they'll still travel. Well, people have discovered working from home now. And it's nicer working from home, at least some of the time, because you save an awful lot of travelling time and aggro, and you can save money on fares. And it's entirely possible that we're now in a world where commuter fares are what economists call elastic. They used to be an elastic, you could put the fare up, you lost one or two people, but you gained far more revenue from all the existing captive people paying higher fares than you lost from one or two people stopping commuting. We're now in a situation where people can stop commuting and switch to working from home. And it could well be that putting the fares up continually like this could lose you more revenue from people starting to work at home than they gain from the remaining people paying the higher fares. Uh, and that's, that's a complete change from what's happened. We don't know whether that's the case yet, but it's entirely possible. So blindly putting up the fares year on year might actually not be the best situation. There is an interesting flip side to this, though, which has been reported in a few online papers that with rising energy prices, working from home could be more expensive for the average commuter. Now, it should be said that this is comparing the energy bill to an average commuting cost of £64. But really, the reason I wanted to mention this is just to give a quick update on energy here, as the price cap increase will be coming in from April. And there have been predictions it could rise by a further 50% or more in October. So, Adam, could it be worth trying to lock in a fixed deal now before the first of these rises in April? It's really concerning. So this is based on Cornwall Insights, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago. Their, their recent analysis, obviously huge seismic events with Russia invading Ukraine and the impact that has on the, on the energy market um, in terms of driving up global prices. Their latest analysis shows that there could be another 50% increase in line in October. That drives your, your average energy bill for your household, an average household, sort of three, four people, three bedroom house, up to the range of sort of 2,700, 3,000 pounds a year. That's, um, that's actually does mm -hmm. scare me, it has to mm. be said. And 
it throws into question really the support that government has announced so far will not be enough and more has to be done there. Um, if you're looking at certainty and you want certainty at the moment, then it may now be worth looking at those fixed term deals. I'd still hold back from going for those at the moment purely because the market is very volatile with what's happening in the world. And if you decide to jump ship now and go for a fixed term deal, it may be actually those prices come down or government action will bring down those prices or there'll be something happening. So I would say, you know, it will be a gamble and there's no easy answer here in the energy market. It's all a gamble at the moment, whether you go for a fixed term deal or stick if on the default tariff at a price cap rate. Personally, at the moment, I'm, I'm going to sit tight for a bit longer um, mm. before making any commitments because I think that amount of increase is something that government cannot afford to ignore. Um, I'd imagine something will happen, but we just do not know at the moment. It's very unpredictable, very volatile, and I appreciate 100% very concerning for people as things stand. But to keep bills as cheap as you can through the summer, you're probably better off on the price cap tariff as things stand. But obviously... If that situation changes, we'll be letting you know. Thanks, Adam. Well, let's bring it back to to commuting now. And if you still have to travel by train, let's make sure you save where you can. And we can start with some top tips from travel blogger Lucy Dodsworth. To start with the real basic, booking as far ahead as you can. Normally fares are on sale around 12 weeks, sometimes earlier. There's a handy little um, chart on the National Rail website that tells you how far ahead they're currently booking for different train lines and try and get some advance fares and try and travel off peak when you can as well. But even if you can't book really far in advance, quite often you can still get advance tickets the night before. And for some services, I think it's cross country, will let you book 15 minutes before. You can still get a cheaper ticket then than if you buy a ticket straight as you get on the train. Worth looking around on a few sites if you've got time. Um, There's quite a few booking sites like... Trainline, Rail Easy, Red Spotted Hanky that do charge a small fee when you book with them. So if you want to avoid the fee, the best way is to go direct to the train operating companies themselves. Split ticketing is a really good um, idea, if you're, especially if you're doing a longer journey. So I was at university in Dumfries in Scotland um, for a year, a couple of years back. And to travel from my home in Cheltenham, it was far cheaper to buy a ticket to Birmingham and then a ticket from Birmingham to Dumfries. It saved, I could save probably £30, £40 pounds sometimes on the train journey from doing that. You can do it yourself. You can just think if you're travelling from London to Manchester, maybe you change a Birmingham or something, you book the two different tickets. Or there's some tools, um, split my ticket, uh, split ticketing. There's lots of different services that will do it for you. Um, they do charge you a little fee again, but you're usually saving quite a lot by doing the split ticketing, so it's worth doing. And also one of the benefits of this is if you're starting your journey in a peak time and it goes off peak or vice versa, you can book a, a ticket, a single ticket for the section that's in the peak area, then go into an off peak. So you're not paying a full peak fare for the entire journey, which can save quite a lot too. Adam, is there anything you'd, you'd like to add to that? Say for commuters now also working from home, how many days a week would you actually need to be in for a season ticket or a flexi ticket to be worth it? I've been looking into this uh, mm. on, a, on a personal basis, uh, as well as looking at the wider advice we, we can give. So these flexi season tickets, they'll give you eight days in a 28 day period um, to make the same journey. And you could do those sort of all eight days together and then not for the rest of the month. It could be two days a week, for example. Um, however, you want to work it really to use that. And ultimately, it really depends on the route you're on. And mm. if you and what times you have to travel as well. If you have to travel at peak times, 
um, and you're going in those two days a week, for example, then it could be that a flexi season ticket is the most cost effective option for you. But if you have flexibility and when you can travel, uh, then, for example, going for off-peak tickets um, and booking specific advanced tickets, you're likely to still be able to do that regular journey for a lot less. Of course, it comes with the time admin. And I feel like Hmm. every time we talk about saving money uh, and over the last few weeks, often it's an investment of your time that you need to make in the way to save money. That's, That's the price you pay ultimately then is you have to spend time doing this. But if you can save substantial, like hundreds of pounds a month by booking different journeys and actually traveling off peak where you can, depends how flexible your employer is around start times and what options you have there. Um, But that can be more cost effective. Now, if you're going in sort of three, four days a week, it may be the case actually that a season ticket is going to be easier, especially again, if you have to travel at peak times, um, Mm -hmm. then that's probably the better option for you. I will say now, actually, the train line has a really good um, tool on its website that allows you to put in most journeys and show you like how much it will cost and give you a recommendation around which season ticket will be the better option for you as well. Um, But it's also worth speaking to whichever train company runs your local line as well. So there are plenty of options there to figure out because it does vary from journey to journey, does vary depending when you need to travel. Um, But a bit of legwork could save yourself hundreds of pounds. Adam, and I also heard an interesting hack this week. Well, I'm not sure if we'd call it a hack, but a saving where you can add your rail card to your Oyster card. Does that work with with all rail cards? Yeah, pretty much. It works with all of the rail cards and you can save up to a third, for example, if you've got a young person's rail card. Only works on off-peak times though. Um, So it is worth being aware of that. So if you're again commuting at peak times, you're unlikely to get those kind of savings back on your Oyster card. But certainly go to TFL's website, you can attach your rail cards to your Oyster card, depending on the card you have will depend on some of the savings you can make. But it is worth worth doing if you're regularly uh, tubing and training and busing across London. Well, let's talk now on petrol and car costs, starting with petrol. We can split savings into where you buy it and how efficiently you use it. Now, Sarah mentioned her supermarket is the cheapest. And on this, is there any difference between branded fuel and supermarket versions? And is there a cheapest place to buy it from? In terms of fuel, there is no difference in the quality. Uh, Wherever you buy it um, in the UK, you'll be uh, buying fuel that conforms to British standards. In fact, a supermarket fuel will be a above British standards. So that's a bit of, a bit of right. an urban myth on, uh, around fuel there. But it is uh, without mm. doubt that supermarket fuel is the cheapest that you will buy. There are some independent retailers that really do pride themselves on having a good price uh, and give the supermarkets a bit of a run for the money. But generally, the supermarkets are the cheapest. And that's because they sell the most fuel. They have under a, a mm. fifth of all forecourts, but they sell nearly half of all the fuel. And so therefore they're benefiting from um, just buying so frequently. And as, as they buy more frequently, they can uh, take advantage of some of the you know, changes in wholesale price. Obviously, we're in a rising market in the, in the moment, but in a, mm. a falling market, they will be buying more frequently and can pass on savings quicker. If only they did, they tend not to. And that's why we have this expression of the rocket and the feather. Prices go up like a rocket in a rising market and fall like a feather in a falling one. And obviously we're seeing that at the moment with the... The price of oil and the price of wholesale fuel going up so fast. It does make sense. Supermarkets shift so much fuel when you have to be there anyway. It makes sense to top up, doesn't it? Um, when it comes to when you're at the pumps, you've got unleaded, then you have things like super unleaded as well. I mean, what is the difference there between those two? Do, will you get more 
economy out of one versus the other, for example? Is it ever worth spending more on on the fancier petrol? That's what I've heard. So some cars, some high performance cars, you know, specify manu- the manufacturers say you should use super unleaded. It has a higher octane value, so it ignites a higher level. Um, and uh, it may contain some um, detergents, uh, some additives that the uh, suppliers put in there to kind of make their their product more premium and better for your car. But the differences are going to be kind of marginal. You certainly, you might get a few extra miles to the gallon, but you're going to be paying an awful lot more. Because of the uh, the move to E10 petrol, uh, which I mentioned earlier, if your car isn't, uh, isn't compatible with that, um, it could cause some damage to hoses and various components because uh, it uh, has more water content isn't, and therefore corrosive. You may, if you have a classic car or just a very much an older car which isn't uh, compatible, you're forced then to buy the E5 grade, which is only available in the super unleaded um, grade. So that is uh, at the moment around 10 pence a litre more expensive. So if, if you're you know not well enough enough to have a more modern car, then you're going to be paying through the nose to put petrol into your car because it's just not compatible and you have to use the uh, the E5 grade super unleaded. So it's a bit unfortunate there really for many people. And in terms of uh, prices across supermarkets, I feel like if you speak to anyone, they'll be able to tell you which supermarket they think is, is the cheapest near them. But does any one supermarket seem to be leading the way with cheapest prices? Um, Asda is generally the cheapest supermarket. Um, although uh, perhaps it isn't quite so aggressive on pricing as it once was, mm. which is a bit to the detriment of the rest of the market because that does then kind of force the others to cut their prices than everyone else. Because obviously, if you're so much more expensive than the supermarket around you, um, then you know, that's not going to be good for your business. But uh, equally, you know, some of the retail, you know, independent retailers do charge a good price, but generally you'll find prices are cheaper where there is the presence of a supermarket or two um, nearby. And if there's only one, then you might find they actually start to charge a little bit more because they know mm. they can. So uh, it's a lot of uh, local retail dynamics that uh, play a part in the price you actually pay for petrol where you are. I think a big takeaway for me is, is this, this urban myth around supermarket petrol not being good enough. And I've certainly heard family members yeah. say, I'm not putting that rubbish in my car. And really? you know that that clearly is nonsense. And actually, you're you're spending a load more money than you need to on fuel. So I think that's a really important um, takeaway from this conversation I'm taking. And certainly, I'm going to be making a few people listen to this segment as well because that's clearly just you're burning money effectively that you don't need to right there. Without a doubt, you know it is just one of these myths that does need to be busted once and for all. Uh, so you know, I would really encourage everyone to buy as cheaply as they possibly can. Obviously, you know, we're in a modern country, we have um, you know, British standards that are there to protect consumers and uh, you know, they couldn't be selling something uh, that wasn't uh, fit for purpose. And then what about the way we drive? How much difference can this make to the amount of fuel we use? And what kind of changes are we talking about here? The single best thing you can do to save uh, fuel once you put it into your vehicle is to drive more fuel efficiently. And the best way to do that is by being easier with your right foot on the accelerator. You want to avoid harsh acceleration and therefore you know, harsh deceleration, harsh braking, and just try to keep your car moving smoothly um, within the speed limit. You know, if you're coming to the lights, you know, rather than racing up to the lights and braking, try to kind of just slow down and keep the car moving and then maybe the lights will change and you can keep on going. And therefore you haven't had to waste any more 
um, fuel by pressing the accelerator again. Um, taking the weight out of your car, uh, if you're carrying around you know, useless junk in the boots, which is adding weight, um, you know, keeping your tires correctly inflated because that also affects how well, how fuel efficient your car will run. Taking roof bars off um, so there's less drag, those kind of things. Everything's going to help, but to be absolutely honest, they're very, very, very small um, savings. The accelerator one is the biggest, but by far and away, the best thing you can do is buy as cheaply as possible. And obviously, that is increasingly difficult at the moment due to the way everything's uh, going. So keep an eagle eye out for the price of fuel. You can always see the average price of fuel on the RSC website. Just Google RSC Fuel Watch. Once you know the average price, buy as far below that as you possibly can. Chances are there'll be a supermarket, but not necessarily. Well, let's now take a look into how the running costs compare across different cars. Here's our producer, Rob, checking out the rises at his local petrol station before catching up with which car expert, Adrian Porter. Now, I'm going to take myself on a little drive. I'm going to grab my car keys. Now, I'm going to take a trip to the petrol station because I need some fuel. And we all know that fuel prices are right now higher than they've ever been. But I haven't been to fill up for a long time. So I'm not overly sure how much it's going to be at my local forecourt. And I'm also going to have a chat in a moment to Adrian from Witch. Anyway, I'm going to head out now. Cool. Let's get in the car. My girlfriend was driving this last, so I'll have to move the seat back. She is five foot three. I'm six foot four. Seatbelt on. And then off we go. So the aircon's on quite a lot. Turn that down already. Temperature's on 26 degrees. I think it was a lot colder last time I got in this car. So the petrol station is about, about a two minute drive. Like it's not very far. I almost feel a bit guilty driving there, but obviously you've got to if you want to fill up with fuel. So I'm going to turn out of the end of this road and then it's just on the left and I should be there. And then here we are, so I'm turning in now, so regular unleaded 153.9 and then regular diesel 157.9. Get out of the car, I'll fill up and then I'll head back. Adrian, hello. Hi, Rob. Good to hear from you. So I'm Adrian Porter. I'm one of the researchers here at Witch, uh, working in the product testing department, and I work on cars. So you are the perfect person then to uh, to talk to me about this. Now, we've just heard my journey and we left it on a bit of a cliffhanger because I told you how much the diesel was going to cost me, but I didn't tell you how much it cost in the end. And I know that you think you can guess how much it cost me if I give you just a little bit more information. You have a Kia Sportage. It's one of the most popular cars in the UK, according to SMMT data, and you drive a diesel version. And um, from the version that we've tested, it's got a 62-litre tank on it, right? So um, how much of your tank did you fill? Like, how? where was the needle, roughly, as you were pulling up to the, the petrol pump? Or diesel pump. 
so it was just about to nudge onto the light coming on, I think. So we were we were pretty far down. Okay, so if I can, um, gosh, quickly do 62 divided by 8, 7.75. So I reckon you filled up about 55 litres worth. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty accurate. Oh, that's good. So uh, what, 86, 87 pounds? It was like £85.50, Adrian. That is there nuts. There we go. There we go. To put a bigger figure on that, so we know like the typical pre-COVID, we should say, mileage was around 9,000 miles. So for uh, a diesel uh, sportage, that would mean sort of going from sort of £1,120 per year for your fuel costs up to 1440 which is quite a big increase. If we were to take, say, a popular card like the Ford Focus, you know, it's it's a medium-sized hatchback. Using that as an example, everyone can picture a Ford Focus. So we're picturing a medium-sized car. Now, if you were driving a petrol version of that car, you know, back in March 2021, to again to charge uh, to uh, to travel 9,000 miles, that average mileage, you're looking at sort of 1,200. Uh, that's now gone up to 1,500 pounds, nearly on the nose. So that's an increase of 280. Or if you want the pence per mile figures, if that's uh, easier, then it's 13.6 pence rising to 16.7 pence. You know, so we're, we're seeing we're seeing big increases. Um, it's the same for diesel. Like diesel obviously costs more, but diesel cars tend to be are more fuel efficient than petrol cars. Um, so if you to take the same uh, size car, put a diesel engine in it, uh, you're looking at paying £925 for 9,000 miles, and that has risen to £1,130 for 9,000 miles. So again, you know, we're, we're seeing um, a relatively big increase there. It's over, still over £200. I don't want to give too many figures. I don't want to give people sort of figure fatigue. But uh, just looking at petrol and diesel, large SUVs, Generally, you know the the price from March last year to March this year has gone up to it's around two hundred and eighty to three hundred pounds over nine thousand miles, or just over three pence per mile has been added uh, in twelve months to to your running costs, and that again is a scary figure. You might be driving electric, and electric is going to save you um, a lot of money if you can charge from home so again sticking with those those medium-sized cars uh as i mentioned before like um march 2021 the petrol would have cost you 1220 the diesel would have cost you 925 but an electric car electric medium car charged from home 620 pounds uh to to fill us up um and actually that's using the 21 pence uh, price cap which came in in october last year it was even cheaper before then but with the 28 pence uh, per kilowatt hour price cap coming uh in april that actually rises to 826 pounds so we're still seeing an increase um annual increase of over 200 pounds just from one price cap to another and you know we believe there are more uh, down the line but that means uh, the electric cars have gone from uh, 6.9 pence per mile to 9.2 pence wow, per mile but okay. that's still significantly cheaper uh, than their petrol and diesel counterparts as long as you're charging from home now, I just want to touch on the other end of the cost spectrum. If, like Sarah mentioned, you're in the market for a new or second-hand car, you might be facing some steep prices there too. Now, I saw a staggering stat from Auto Trader that the average price for a used car has gone up by 29% in the last year. Simon, is now a particularly bad time to buy? And could it be worth holding out if you can? Uh, it's, that's a difficult one uh, because prices have gone up. Um, but mm. the chances are, you know, your car that you're selling is uh, going to be worth more. 
but the car you'll be looking to buy will also be worth more. So you're probably in broadly the same situation as you would be at any other time. Could it be the case then that, that in, in a few years' time, the prices start to drop? That, that, that could well be the case. Um, things are also going to change as well because we're obviously moving towards electric. You know, the, the cars that are uh, being sold at the moment are there are lots of electric cars and uh, fewer diesel ones. Uh, diesel is mm. obviously um, not in favour now, having been encouraged to buy a diesel car many years ago by the government because of uh, fewer carbon dioxide emissions. Um, they are now obviously worse for your health in terms of uh, nitrogen dioxide emissions. And we have clean air zones springing up everywhere where, you know, which will penalise diesel vehicles. Uh, so, you know, they are out of favour. And obviously by 2030, uh, no new petrol diesel cars will be sold. So things are changing. Electric cars are the way forward. But of course, they are more expensive to buy initially. Um, leasing them um, can actually be a good way to go because... You, but you, again, you're going to need some kind of deposit, the same as you would do with a PCP, personal contract purchase. Um, so you could consider potentially selling your car, getting them that would then possibly give you the money to put down a deposit either for the PCP or the uh, personal lease uh, and actually leasing a car for some uh, time and getting into electric. And then you're going to save so much money on petrol and diesel. Uh, as we know with the prices so high, it could be kind of looking at sixteen, seven hundred pounds a year, depending on how many miles you drive. I have to say, it's very difficult if you do. I'm only position right now. We've got a child on the way. We've got a Nissan Micra. I mean, we're hoping we can fit car seats and, and bits and pieces in there, but it's looking challenging. And then you're looking at the car market right now. It's so hard to know what choices you should be making with these big changes coming up at the end of the decade. Prices quite high on secondhand cars cost of fuel, should you go electric? None of this is is easy at the moment as a consumer to know what the right choice to make is. And to finish then, can we end with some money-saving advice? Say, your big three tips to take away on car costs and and rail fares. So in terms of uh, fuel, obviously just shopping around, making sure you know where your best fuel is. Try to kind of plan your journeys. Um, Find a a supermarket where you know uh, you're going to get a good deal on the price um, of fuel and then drive as fuel efficiently as you can. We know that's kind of what happens uh, when prices are high. People do need to try and eke out uh, the fuel they buy because it is more expensive. Uh, And then, you know, if you could somehow go electric, you would save uh, an awful lot of money at the moment. Uh, It's definitely the way to go. And uh, the green revolution is really, really beginning. That's fantastic. In terms of train travel um the 12 week window is the most important thing to bear in mind if you're looking at booking advanced tickets so if if flexi tickets season tickets aren't going to be cost effective for you 12 weeks before you're due to travel is often when you'll find train companies will discount the routes and the journeys that they think aren't going to be sellouts effectively so you can often find quite dramatic discounts on particular journeys then so if you do have the luxury of time looking at that you can save yourself a considerable sum of money Uh, and then the other side of that is if if you don't have that luxury actually looking at split fares and split journeys can save a lot of money as well that's where you'll basically split the journey so if i'm going from norwich to london it might be i'll do a buy a ticket from Norwich to Ipswich and then another one for Ipswich to London, for example. And then finally, if you don't have a rail card and you're eligible for one, look into that and that can make a considerable saving on train travel if it's off peak. So if you're still fortunate enough to be under uh, 30, I'm very jealous, you can get a rail card there. Um, but also two together rail cards if you're traveling as a couple, you can get the national rail card, which applies to certain routes in the southeast. 
Um, so there's plenty of options out there that could help you save a few pounds on your train travel. Thank you so much to Simon and Adam for coming on the show today. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money Podcast. Our next episode on the rising costs of living will be focusing on renting. So please get in touch on the Witch Money Facebook and Twitter with your observations on price increases, comments and any questions. And we'll try and address them in the show. If you haven't already, please do hit follow and subscribe and leave us a review and rating wherever you're listening. And for more money saving news and advice, head to witch.co.uk forward slash save money to find our rising cost of living hub. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was produced and edited by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Charlotte Gifford.